0: Good evening and welcome to Editing Aloud. We have with us this evening on the panel Nick Spall, um, usually an education economist at the University of Stellenbosch but has most recently worked with the NIDS-Cram study which we're going to ask him about and the shock finding of that study is that even by April 3 million jobs had probably already been lost. Nick a lot of economists seem to be sort of rather stuck on this notion that we're going to lose a million jobs one million jobs as a result of the COVID crisis now that is what we lost in the great financial crisis i mean is that even possible that it will be that low terrifying as even one million jobs is i mean what what does your study
1: show sure So I think the first thing we should uh, clarify is the time period that we're looking at. So those 1 million jobs that were lost in the financial crisis, what's actually 800,000, if you're looking at the QLFS data from December of 2018 to December of 2019, that's an annual figure. Uh, Whereas at the moment, what we're speaking about is the loss of jobs from February to April during the peak of this lockdown, the most severe time. So it's possible that some of the jobs, those three million jobs that were lost, for example, between February and April, that some of them come back, uh, that people get employment again so that the net job loss uh, at at the whole year, when we look at this in December, might be lower than three million. Some people think it might be higher than three million. Uh, But I think that we need to figure out, are we talking about immediate job loss as a result of the lockdown or are we talking about net job loss in the financial year of 2020? I think that's what the the distinction there is. Um, But I do think that our data, the micro data from NIDSCRAM, is currently the only um, base information to base those sorts of decisions on.
0: And what is your personal take on on whether it's going to be more or less than the three million you're already seeing in the period of the hard lockdown, if you like?
1: So um, I think... To be honest, I think that it might be more, uh, and I'll tell you the reason why. I don't think that the, uh, the bounce back that we are hoping for is likely to materialize. Um, I think that the, the spread of the virus is increasing now. We are entering our surge, um, and that the, the types of economic bounce back that would be needed to bring some of those jobs back uh, in the services sector, in the tourism sector, uh, in the informal sector, uh, that seems unlikely. Uh, And it's also possible that some businesses that are currently paying their workers, even though they are not uh, currently working, that they may not be able to do that anymore. Uh, And that I think some businesses that are still open now may yet still close uh, as a result of the crisis that we're in. And those people will also become unemployed. For example, the restaurant sector. Uh, There are a lot of restaurants here in Cape Town that are just closing uh, and saying that they're not able to reopen and they're currently either employing or part employing a number of people that may yet still lose their jobs, the nice thing is we're gonna have data on this. Uh, So we'll hopefully be able to tell from that, from wave two, wave three, wave four, following these same individuals, whether they get their jobs back or whether more people lose uh, more jobs.
0: Now, quickly, what does that look like in sort of real social human terms? That is something that your study also looked like, looked at.
1: In terms of the job loss and the income loss? Um, so of course, job loss, uh, leads to income loss. So people that lose their jobs also lose their incomes, their primary source of income for the household, which has knock on effects for household welfare. Um, so 47% of respondents said that their household ran out of money to buy food in the month of April, uh, and 22% of respondents said that someone in the household went hungry in the last seven days. Now these are rates of hunger that we've never seen before in South Africa. Uh, if we're looking at the previous examples of the general household survey those sorts of questions are only ever asked in the last year or the last month have you run out of money to buy food or have has someone in your household experienced hunger and yet we are seeing kind of double or triple those rates in the last week compared to these yearly or annual figures so we definitely are seeing huge knock-on effects uh in households and that those effects are most severe for women um, and we are also seeing much higher rates of child hunger.
0: Rob Rose, you devoted much of last week's Financial Mail to the survey and the studies around it. Uh, Tell us what drove you and what kind of response have you had?
2: We've had a lot of interest in it. We've had tons of letters and lots of reader engagement about it. I mean, I think that the, like Nick said, the the figures that he talks about are are quite terrifying. Um, but I also think it's more than just it's more than just the top line number of say you know extrapolate that and it's three million jobs. It's about the real impact on households. You can say only three million jobs have been lost if you extrapolate that, but the reality is a lot of households are not getting income. And they're getting, you know, people who are employed are having 60% um, salary reductions, 40% salary reductions. So you're seeing a massive knock-on effect in people's lives. And I think that's, that to me was one of the real impacts of the study. The fact that, you know, um, women bore the brunt of the job losses. For example, I think it was 66% or something like that. I think mm. um, I found I found this some some um, really terrifying nuance in those numbers that I think is, is certainly far more. Um, of micro value than anything else we've seen before on this. And it certainly indicates how badly people's lives have been affected.
1: One additional comment on that, if I can, about the the job losses for women. I think that one thing that the study showed, of those 3 million job losses, 2 million were experienced by women. Uh, But interestingly, the SASA report to NEDLAC, which happened at the end of June, showed that 2 thirds of the COVID-19 grant recipients were men. That's the unemployment grant. So two thirds of job losses are being experienced by women. And yet two thirds of these grants are going to men. And these are official numbers reported by SASA. Uh, And I think the reason for this is the exclusion criteria where if you receive another grant, you can't get the COVID grant. Uh, And obviously many women get the, the child support grant, but the problem is that that is actually on behalf of their child. They are receiving that grant for the benefit of the child, not for themselves. So I think that there's a big challenge there and potentially a legal challenge that women are being excluded and discriminated against uh, only because they have a child and they're receiving a grant on behalf of that child.
0: Actually, Nick, you do make the point that 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 brings us to the whole question of relief, because you make the point in the study that that it actually took two months for any of the government relief, be it the social grants, the extra social grants or the unemployment insurance to even start to get to people. So I mean, what, is, wh- what sort of impact does that have? And mm. um, has it helped now?
1: Yeah. So I think if there's a helpful distinction, we can talk about uh, means and mechanisms. Uh, so the means is like, do we have the resources to give uh, households and individuals? Do we have the relief to be able to give them? And then the mechanisms are, how do we get it to them? Uh, and I think that there are challenges on both fronts. Uh, the, 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 if we look at the balance sheet, if we look at um, the ability of Treasury to raise these funds to be able to provide this over the long term, I think there are big question marks of, of how we will extend the, the grant payouts beyond October, which I think everyone is recognizing we need. Uh, but the second one is whether the mechanisms that we have to pay families uh, are the right ones. So the top up to the child support grant and other grants that could have been implemented immediately. Uh, It could have been implemented within three weeks. Uh, The fact that it took uh, a number of months after uh, the implementation before that was done was partly because of negotiations within government around this new grant, the COVID-19 grant, and whether we should be using existing grants to target the poor or a new grant to target the unemployed. And I think that this is a point that um, one of the studies uh, and in the Financial Mail, the, the one that that's uh, co-authored by Isan Basir makes, is that that COVID-19 grant took so long to be implemented and rolled out that many people were left in the lurch. And that we should have relied more heavily on the existing grant infrastructure, and particularly the child support grant, to immediately top up uh, and target that relief to those families because it's so well targeted.
0: And because it was there and it was easy. Look, can you you're looking at the kind of data that are coming out now um, which have a bearing on the second quarter, the third quarter of the second quarter this year uh, because um, the study that Nick talks about is in the sort of first quarter going into the second quarter. Um, So the second quarter was in a way, the second and third quarters were supposed to be in a way recovery phases, certainly the third quarter. What are you seeing from the limited economic indicators we have got so far for the third quarter, say, and whether there is any sort of sign of the kind of recovery that would address this degree of job loss and income loss and hunger and poverty.
3: Uh, Unfortunately, Hilary, the the data that we have so far, as limited as it is, it's not really showing that kind of recovery. And I think uh, Nick made the point earlier that that's you know, as, we, as we are heading towards the surge, our surge now in the virus. Like, so the fact that we actually like opened up the economy theoretically, like we're, we're on level three, and there is more activity. There's no doubt about it. You can see if you go out in the street. But I think there's so much uncertainty for businesses, or you know, businesses that have spent, lost a lot of money closing down and then, then having to spend money to actually open up and then having to close down again, that, that, that possibility. So it means people, there is not, there is not confidence there. So there's going to be this stop-start stop, economic activity, like, so we, which, which doesn't really lend itself to, 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 to any kind of confidence. And I think the numbers we're going to see, like, I think today, they, they won't actually go up to June, but I think that's going to be May, like uh, retail numbers, that, that are going to look just completely terrible. And if you think about it, we, we supposedly were already like, back in business by like, sort of May, like in some sectors, but, but but the numbers are just going to look horrifying. And what recovery we see now is not going to make up really for, for the pain that we're likely to see going forward And the restaurants, hotels, airlines. Though those are all still closed, you know. Like, which a big chunk coming out of much of our um, economy's services, something like 60%. Yeah,
0: One of the more contentious issues about the reopening is whether schools could reopen. Um, and whether, if you like, the economy can reopen as long as children are not in school. Nick, in fact, you're you're you are primarily an educational economist, um, but you've come out with a pretty strong view that the schools need to be reopened. Spell that out for us.
1: Sure. Um, so I think the the first thing to emphasise is that when we are asking what should happen with schools, we really need to say what is in the best interests of children and what is in the best interests of South Africa. We're facing a pandemic. Uh, and of course there are many constraints there, this is not a perfect time to be opening uh, schools. Um, but the problem is that there's so many children that rely on schools. There's so many parents that rely on schools for so many reasons. Um, and I just want to highlight two. Uh, one is school feeding. So when schools are open, nine million children get a meal at school every single day from Monday to Friday. While schools are closed, they are not getting those meals. Uh, There was a recent the court judgment, uh, which said that the minister has to provide these meals because they are so essential to children. The second one is, as you mentioned, you cannot reopen the economy without reopening schools. So there are four and a half million essential workers in South Africa. And of those 650,000 are healthcare workers. So what must happen to the children of these doctors and nurses um, when they go to work if the schools are closed? So really, the fact that schools are closed is actually hindering our ability to respond well to this pandemic. uh, Because we don't have other options other than school and childcare to take care of 12 million children. We really can't come up with a patchwork system to try and do this uh, at such short notice. Schools are uh, the main answer to that. Um, there's also the, the issue of children that don't have adult caregivers that aren't working. So we show that about one million children, their only adult caregiver is employed. So what happens when they go back to work? We might have a one million young children under the age of six uh, who have no child care uh, and don't, can't go to school. Uh, these I don't are even want to think about that,
0: issues. Nick. <laughs> I really don't want to think about it that kind of scenario but Rob as both the editor of the financial mail and the parent of small children um, I mean how do you balance the fear factor which about going back to school and the economic factor and indeed the, 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 the point that's been raised about what especially poor children lose by not being in school the poor children who don't have internet connectivity and can't learn online I mean this is this is really a, a difficult one. I mean, where would you want to take South Africa on that balance?
2: Well, I think, I mean, firstly, just on the next point, I often feel like when my two kids are running around that I have all million kids running around my house. But um, I suppose I'm probably not correct on that. It just feels like that. But, I mean, I suppose it's, it's emotional as well. And you know what the science says. The science says that generally kids don't transmit the virus. They get it. Generally, they don't get very ill. Uh, certainly... Ages 0 to 9, there's been, you know, statistically fractional um, actual illnesses that have come out of it. So I think the science supports going back to school, um, and I think that that's important to do for the reasons that Nick spells out. I, I mean, I think that some people have it have it much easier, um, and a lot of people don't, and they have an alternative. So for that reason, you'd have to say the schools will open. Um, but the thing is that disturbs me a bit is that we haven't. We seem to be heading into this crush and casatu. Is clashing with the education department and it feels like even though we've had months prepare for this exact scenario we haven't prepared for it and now we're reaching this state where you know the minister's being pressurized to extend it and she isn't and it's 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 quite contentious at the moment
0: and yet i mean look can you we, we we're going into a monetary policy committee meeting um with presumably growth forecasts being revised down potentially yet again, Um, are we seeing a recovery plan? I mean, what do we do about both growth and the human cost of the crisis at this point?
3: Those are are good good questions, I mean, I I was actually going to ask Nick, for example, and when the when the crisis first hit, we had all these relief measures from the government and I mean, there's a lot of debate because about how ineffective like uif and all those things have been but, but i think a big debate about going forward is like a lot of them actually coming to an end now right? and and also not just like all the pure poorest of the poor like I even mean, if you talk about like sort of middle class people who've had like you know like a payment holidays from for the, on their mortgages and that, i mean those are all basically should be coming out or should be finishing off in the, in the sort of next month or so. And then in the meantime, there is no sense really that, that, that the economy is booming again and that those people who've had their jobs or who've had their salaries cut are going to be getting that reversed anytime soon. I mean, and, and then you've got the Reserve Bank coming up, but I don't know that that actually has any impact Will another really. cut in interest <laughs> rates help, help us? Assuming
0: they do cut interest rates again, does it, does it have a, make a material difference to these economic outcomes you're talking about, Lacanio?
3: i suppose in as far as like if your business or your household who has got a mortgage or you have got like debts to pay off like on that level yes but 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 i but i can't see it like promoting a massive amount of economic activity i mean the irony is like i think we've had like the most aggressive like period of, of of cutting in the last few months but, but that, that has probably had very little impact on the economy simply because the economy was actually closed so there is mm-hmm. that and it's also that so that must take time to 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 filter through over time but you would think the argument for, for, for a bit more relief is a bit is more than uh, settled really, but when you think of the outlook for inflation, just just on the macro numbers, the outlook for inflation actually the rent has actually been terribly strong. Amazing talking about a strong rent when it's at sixteen eighty or whatever it is, but 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 it's much stronger than it was when it was heading for the Yes.
0: Yeah. Rob, what would you like to see Rob, what would you like to see in the way of measures, economic or directly relief measures. I mean, what should we be doing at this point, facing as we do another, at least a month or two, of the surge that Nick, Nick talks about?
2: Well, I certainly think it's going to take a lot longer than that. And I think there'll be far more retrenchments in the next couple of months. So I think you need to, government can't think that it was a three-month thing. So I think the thought process of extending the TERS benefits a bit longer will help I mean Nick, one of the things that I found interesting in your study was that a lot of those relief measures haven't actually got to people effectively. I mean that that's, I mean surely that indicates that we haven't done enough to help people and raises the question of whether these have been any good. I mean they have helped I suppose on the margin, but it hasn't done what people expected, right?
1: Yes, I think that for TERS and for the COVID nineteen grant, those took a while to get operational and for lots of people to start receiving them. And in that sense, we should actually see an improvement in households income for those that receive that, uh, whereas they didn't get that in April, for example. Uh, with the rollout in June and July, we should hopefully see that 350 rand top up for millions of South Africans uh, that are unemployed. We should see that in, in knocking on into their household income, uh, as well as the TERS benefit, the UIF benefit that you mentioned. So although those have taken a long time to happen, they are now starting to, um, to be felt.
0: I did see, though, that the social development minister reported that they'd had seven million plus applications and approved only three million plus of them. And their systems seem to have been quite an issue.
1: Well, more than just uh, only approving half of them, uh, it turns out that something like 80 percent of the rejected applicants were actually eligible. Uh, And I think this actually gets you to points to one of the things around the capacity of government to provide relief it's not just a question of do we have the means it's also do you have the mechanism to operationalize something like vetting of millions of south africans on a new grant system you need a very competent bureaucracy to be able to do that and unfortunately that's not dsd uh the ability of dsd to implement these sorts of technical that are actually quite complicated technical uh exercises in a very short space of time is pointing to a big lack uh, in the capacity of a lot of these government departments
3: Nick, can I ask you a question on that, actually? Because I know you, know, you mentioned the court case to do with the uh, with, with the Minister of Education and the Food. I mean it's, it's, I mean, it's quite ironic in the way, as Rob wrote about it, that, that, that you've got this government that has to be taken to court in order to feed children. But at the same time, it's also talking about the basic income grant. But, but, but based on what you're saying about the mechanisms, would something like a basic income grant, then, would, would, would it take away all that complexity if you just gave everybody a certain amount? Would, would, would you then be saving all, all that bureaucracy in terms means testing other, other, other projects?
1: So, I mean, outside of COVID, one of the... Uh the reasons why a basic income grant is actually supported by a lot of people is because of how easy it is to implement, allegedly. You know, almost no country has done it yet properly. Uh, But the fact that everyone is eligible uh, in the broadest concept uh, that you would have to apply for it and that a lot of rich people probably would not apply for it because it's a headache uh, and maybe there's some uh, sense that you shouldn't, but technically everyone is eligible for it. Uh, so it's actually easier to do rather than figuring out, do you have a child? Is the child at your house? You know, are you the primary caregiver? Do you, or do you fall below a certain means test? All of those things are required for existing grants. Uh, but I think the big question is what the price tag is uh, for the basic income grant and where that money comes from. Uh, you know, it, things like, do we do NHR? We need national health insurance. Something like COVID-19 makes that very clear, that we're only as safe as the least safe person amongst us. With a, something like an airborne virus, uh, but then do you also have basic income grants, where we need to provide relief to ensure social and political stability? Both of those things have uh, price tags in the order of like 200 billion rand, uh, or 150 billion rand, depending on how you how you. Where does that money come from? And I think that Hillary, in answer to your question about where do we go from here, we have to find new social compacts. It's not business as usual. We cannot go on and think that the the same kind of South African inequality that we've accepted and just held our noses and accepted is going to get us through this period. I think it's going to get so dire that we will have to find new ways of sharing income and wealth to make sure that the poorest 50% are actually benefiting uh, from the wealth of the country.
0: Rob, I'm going to give you the last word on this. We've got a couple of minutes to go. Do we see any sign of a way out? Do we see any sign of a social compact? And if not, um, why not?
2: I, d- I think it's very difficult at the moment. I mean, we've had people just talking. That's what we've had. We've had new plans. We haven't had much idea of implementation. So I think that that's going to be the problem. And you have a ruling party that's pulling in different ways That is still talking about a national airline. One side is, the other one is saying we're not going to fund it. So I think that we do need that. We need to go in the right direction. But um, at the moment, there's no clear sense that we're going, that all of us on that page.
0: Lucanio, you get a minute to give us your worth. Are we going in the right direction? Uh, Any sign of it?
3: Unfortunately, I have to agree with, uh, with Rob there. Like, I'm also quite sceptical. Like, yeah, well, there isn't really like a, a consensus even within the government itself. So, it's hard, so, so then it's hard then for that government to be like you not know, leading the nation towards a national cons- something a national consensus that sort of transcends all the political sort of, sort of divisions within society as a whole. If they can't decide among themselves on basic things, like as Rob sense. To start an airline, or do we feed children? because <laughs> you know, for me like, that could be quite simple choice. But but but, but seemingly it's not, there and it is taking a lot of energy. Like you know, like fighting over these things when we could actually be doing the big things that 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 that, that, that was talking about, you know, like, like you know, making sure children can like, can go to school safely and all of that.
0: Yeah, we couldn't go without some mention of the endless SAA disaster. But yes, leave us with that question, Lucanio. Do we feed children or do we bail out a completely failing airline and give it a new lease on life? That is all we have time for, but please join us again next week for another edition of Editing Aloud.